Welcome to Lost Link, the podcast with Muff Barber and Yogi Nickerson, where CL data is disabled and no topic is off limits about unmanned aircraft or the United States Air Force. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not represent the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any other federal agency. This podcast contains some profane language and is not suitable for all audiences. Cool. So I've been watching boycotting the Olympics. It's been on the house pretty, pretty unsuccessfully. I saw that. Yeah, um, I'm not watching it. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty hard to like stiff arm the Olympics because you know I want to see American athletes, even in the <laughs> faux winter sports, do well. Yeah, but um, I started watching some other stuff, just to, some raw raw stuff to get me going, dude. I was I revisited the Battle of Britain, 1950s or 60s movie. Oh yeah, I don't know if you ever heard. Yeah, great movie. I used dude. to play it in the 29th bar when I was the mayor there. Oh really? Yeah. Man, I was watching the final dogfight from that, and uh, it's the most, I think it's the greatest aerial dogfight sequence ever filmed, like Star Wars included. I think that was like part of its claim, right? Because all their airplanes were legit. Yes. I think they used some models, but most of it was legit. Yeah, particularly if they're like blowing stuff up, those, yeah, those yeah. ones on the ground are probably just replicas. And in the air and stuff, with wooden, Sean stuff yeah. burning up. But uh, the final scene, it's it starts off with like a kind of bottom view, almost as if you're on the street looking up and you can see the air raid and the air battle taking place over yeah. in London. Like my walk last week. <laughs> like your walk last week. Um, we're, we're going full circle. Thanks, Muff, for preempting me on that. Oh, well, shit. But the... Um, I'm sorry, no, this isn't practiced. <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, and this crate, and so it starts on the ground, looking up at the little spider-like planes, like arcing and turning on each other. Yeah, maybe some contrails and stuff. Yeah, and contrails, and then it cuts up into the battle, and then this this really eerie classical music starts playing, like a kind of frenetic and almost pseudo demonic like. Okay. Um, and there's just a little bit of radio chatter at the beginning, and. Um, as I was rewatching this, it's been about a few years since I've sat. I actually first watched it when I was on like a let's watch all the air power movies kick. And uh, the one thing that really struck me about it, watching just on YouTube the clip of that battle again, is a the music kind of creating this really frenetic kind of frantic tone. Yeah, yeah. and and there's no like sounds of guns or explosions they're just oh, kind of ha- they're just happening in the background and once okay. they like there's a little bit of radio chatter in the beginning um and then it it, it shows a lot of like close ups of the pilots like as they're dying and like trying to get out of their cockpits with the with the um with the cockpit on fire as yeah. they're shot and they're like frantic and crying and working thing and you know as and then as they as they explode or die and it's like a lot of spitfire pilots and a lot of bf-109 pilots so it's not like playing favorites like dunkirk which i really like but right. you never see any of the freaking allies get shot down which lowers the tension <laughs> but the um, um i guess the one guy does get shot down but he he 
the swell looks good. And he comes down and lands on the swell. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And well, Dunkirk, yeah. Oh, and Tom Hardy just runs out of gas. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I guess Fortis, Fortis' leader gets shot down, but you never see it. And you never really see him after his initial communique. Yeah. Where he's like, save gas for you know, 30 minutes fighting time over Dunkirk. Make sure you have enough to get back. And that's all they hear from Fortis' leader. And then they just see his craft sinking into the waves after yeah. the first dogfight. But... With watching them turn and the way they're turning in that first shot too, it just, uh, and then the people, it reminded me because like, uh, I think what we've talked, we decided we're going to talk about is some of these, some maybe lesser known stories coming from the enemies of the United States, yeah. um, from German pilots in World War One and World War Two or two specifically. Um, and to kind of hear their story um, and glean some lessons, some interesting nuggets about their about air power and being a, a warrior in the air. Um, but the way they were turning reminded me of Marseille, who was famous for small circles, and then uh, really the people inside of them um, that are getting shot down. When we're going to be talking about, I think Baron Richtofen and Hans yeah. Hans Joachim Marseille shooting down, you know, many digits worth of craft. I think it's it's interesting that from one perspective, right, on the ground, and, I mean, even just some zoomed-out view of this stuff, Yeah, it's almost, it's beautiful, right? You're just seeing these graceful machines or these just kind of swooping around, chasing each other, right? But yes. inside each individual cockpit yeah, is its own, like, living hell. Yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily like those guys in there are not amidst a ballet, which yeah. is like what this classical music would lead you to believe. And like, well, look at this amazing thing happening. It's all like kind of coordinated, and we it, can maybe splice. We can maybe splice a little bit of that particular track in it. It's not very beautiful. It's very harrowing. Yeah, the classical music the song, that they played yeah. for this. guys are inside burning up and it's cool that like this clip show like cuts into that yes and takes you in yes. and out in and out yeah it's one uh, of the things i loved about the the original star wars movies not to wax on too much about that but the the, the star battles there like those pilots know they're up against they're up against a like suicide mission and like the vastly superior and it's, force. And it's yeah. communicated them <laughs> that they you're right and they're expressing that in the way they're talking and the way they're going about their mission it's not very yippy or graceful they're yeah. like oh god i almost died right that is what's coming out there and um we'll skip this no. because you've already mentioned rick tobin and marseille and <laughs> we're not skipping it <laughs> hit the button <laughs> hit the button muff <laughs> We're, uh, we're deliberately disabling command link now. All right, yeah, we're, we're shutting it off. Uh, we'll let the airplane come back in a minute. All right. <laughs> now, now that that's out of the way, uh, mic's up or down in this case. Um, <laughs> and away we go. So you've already mentioned uh, Baron or Manfred Albrecht Freiherr von Richthofen. My German is 
Yeah. Terrible. Um, translate that to English. It's basically Baron uh, or Manfred von Richthofen or Baron von Richthofen, right? Um, and you want to talk about Hans Joachim or Joachim? Joachim. Uh, Marseille. Yes, Arguably the, the greatest pilot ever? The the greatest fighter pilot who ever lived. Maybe. And there's some, you and know, some, some means to uh, attenuate that a little bit and attenuate the... Uh, the Germans' high numbers here, uh, but we'll get we'll get to all that. Not from Marseille. It's all Western Front, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 I've got I've got means. So anyway, uh, both of these guys are kind of uh, like air power exemplars, absolute studs uh, yeah. that understood uh, aviation, like at least in, in their time, uh, to a level that was above everybody else. And they just had like some inborn natural ability to do it. Yeah. So there's the flying aspect. I also think, and I think you're going to talk about this, that from a larger air power perspective, yeah. the, the good Baron, the red fighter. Yes. Um, Rotaflieger. Yeah. He, he's made a lot of very interesting inroads from like a administrative squadron commander, marshalling air wings perspective i mean i mean maybe he he, he did some stuff early on and probably did it really well and he excelled so much that yeah uh he did early and he's got some tie-ins to like what we're kind of doing now yeah or trying to do now whereas i uh marseille also had that flying capability that rick defend had but yeah. um less so from a he was never a squadron commander in the same way, yeah. but his personality, I think, is so uh, closely tied to the spirit of what it means to be an aviator. Yeah, and his story is very interesting from that perspective. Um, that I think they both of them kind of show different sides of yeah. beyond just their flying skills. They have different sides to them with respect to air power that are worth talking about. Right, and I think it's uh, I think it's worth noting that we're, we're talking about Axis pilots, right? And, and, yeah. <laughs> and there, are, um, there are plenty of awesome exemplars from our own country and from allied nations yep. that we could talk about. Um, but the reason I think that we should talk about these guys is because I think there's, they don't get talked about because they're, they're Axis dudes. And that doesn't diminish their, their story in my mind. I think there's sometimes a anti-enemy anti-intellectualism where there's a sort of comfort in saying like okay those guys were germans they were bad so we're right, not right. going to pay attention to them or give them any credence they're just bad dudes maybe interesting on the side but you can't valorize them um maybe you can't valorize them fully but you we're not going to valorize them at all or look at any of their stuff because well, it we're depends on what they're fighting for right yeah. uh, which is i think kind of core to uh marseille yeah. Um, like I'm, I'm curious if the the German Air Force these days talks much of uh, their pilots during World War II. I bet you they talk about the Red Baron, you know, and that guy's still kind of celebrated by everybody everywhere for you know whatever reason. Uh, but World War II is tainted by a much and a darker, yeah, uh, story, right? Yeah, which taints everybody involved. And Marseille has the best claim to getting over that, but I have some comments for that and how he's been historically received for when we get to that. But I just wanted to say that I think 
there's a difference between the enemy and targets or hunting as the kind of has kind of become the term of art for RPAs and MQ9s. Yeah. And hunting does not imply that the thing you are targeting has any real reach back or is worthy of respect back towards you and can't reach out and touch you in the same way, right? Whereas enemy implies almost an equal status and it's a more elevated perception of that of that person sure. that they have the they're on the equal they're on an equal playing field with you and that they are they have the ability to reach out and touch you yeah just the same just way. as much as you do um and so i think in the spirit of enemy which implies respect and equality in that respect i think that's why and how we're going to look at these guys um and that because I think we tend to slough them off in the in the latter years of the 20th century and now the 21st century and the early years of the 21st century, we tend to like not pay attention to those because we go, oh, they were Nazis. We don't care. Right. And there's they're awesome. It's not to say that there's not other great stories to be had from our own nation or the Allied nations, but these ones maybe don't get enough attention on this side of the pond for that reason. And yet they're still amazing stories worthy of telling. And I think that's the spirit in which at least I want to approach this. There are future episodes that will include the stories of even America's, you know, greatest aces and stuff like that. Cause those dudes were awesome in their own right. And I don't think a lot of our aviators like if you, dude, if you went around, <laughs> uh, yeah, like the 29th and asked how many kills did Ivor Bong get? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, well, America's leading ace during World War II, right? Um, and so there's a lot of story there. Uh, yeah. Because we don't really teach history of any of this stuff to tie what we do now into this long thread of uh, what aviation is and how we got to here to, to bring you into this uh, grander scope of things and to give you a sense of place and a sense of time and a sense of purpose in your own life, right? So... We will talk about all that in future history episodes, I promise. Um, but we like to be off-brand a little yeah. bit on the Lost Link podcast, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and a little bit edgy. So we're, yeah, we're going to start with the enemy. <laughs> we're edgelords, contrarian fucks. Yeah. So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about German pilots because that's what that's what floats our boat at least for today. Well, and in the early stages of uh, aviation, uh, it can be argued that they were some of the the best, right? Uh, particularly Manfred. Von Richthofen. Yeah. Um, so this dude, uh, born in May of 1892 in uh, Breslau, Prussia. Modern day, that's uh, basically in Poland. So he's a Pole. Uh, they, the Poles largely get kind of derided, right, for being this punching bag of Europe because everybody can just kind of roll right through them you know, constantly because they don't really have any mountains, et cetera. But it would be good to remember that a lot of good has come out of Poland. And one of their leading guys is uh, Baron von Richthofen. Of course, he didn't think he was Polish. He was, he was Prussian, He was right? Prussian, right? Which has a much longer history in the Prussian Empire and yeah, things aren't, like that. Aren't but. they more like kind of the, the aristocratic military tradition of, of Germany at that time? That is correct. Okay. Absolutely correct. So... His father was in the military. 
Um, and when this dude was 11, they sent him off to, you know, start like cadet school and, uh, Glad I and in a very to... traditional like boarding school. <laughs> Glad <laughs> right? I didn't go to a uh, cadet school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you waited a couple more years, but uh, <laughs> this guy went. Um, so I'm going to toss this out early. He died at the age of 25. Yeah. So keep like kind of keep that age in mind as this story progresses uh, a bit. Um, he was born a so-called free lord, which basically meant, like we said, his father was you know aristocratic, and this was a title that kind of went to everybody. Yeah. So the long uh, form have, of his name has Freiherr. Again, my German is terrible, um, which roughly translates as baron. So this is eventually where the Red Baron kind of comes from. Uh, long term is from this nobility title, mm-hmm. not not because he was just a badass. And they, yeah, and they, sl- and <laughs> yeah, they slung right. him. Hey, yo, you're a baron. You're a big, big B badass. Baron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you know, he made it into Snoopy cartoons and stuff. It's not like any of that stuff came out of there. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, this is an actual uh, title this dude had uh, when he was a kid. Uh, rode horses and did a bunch of hunting. Like dude, dudes in his you know, 11 years old and he's out in the woods hunting wild boar and elk and stuff with his brothers uh, who are all like slightly younger than him. Like it was, it was like a different time and a different, you, I guess you grew up faster. Why? I don't really know. Yeah. Got married sooner as my, uh, right. as my mom would uh, point out to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he goes through all this cadet training and uh, eventually joins the uh, German army. And, but he joins as a cavalry reconnaissance officer. It's a great place to be, huh? Well, maybe, maybe if, so this is riding around on horseback, right? Sneaking in, getting a peek at something and, you know, writing down your notes and riding like hell back to, you know, the enemy or your lines and reporting what you saw, right? Cool. I'm actually penetrating enemy lines. I'm doing this high risk thing, except trench warfare quickly, (laughs) Uh, obsoletes that entire in a matter of days <laughs> yes in a matter of days you put up a couple machine guns and you know cavalry basically doesn't exist anymore yeah, the the schlieffen plan wasn't all what it was cracked up to be right yeah <laughs> so what the what he ends up doing he like he's he saw action in russia and france and belgium he's kind of bouncing all around i think um, our history nerd is showing a little bit our inner history nerds yeah yeah i love this stuff wear it wear it proudly um <laughs> So, but his unit, uh, because of the trench warfare and like basically no, nobody is moving and a horse is definitely going to get his, get smoked, right? Yeah. Um, his unit becomes dismounted and they primarily, primarily get relegated to running messages between trenches um, and through the trenches. Just, you know, passing, because comms are terrible early on and everything's kind of written down and off they go. And that's boring as hell. Uh, right. Uh, guy gets super boring and in his, over time, like he eventually like just gets ordered to, he's going to be reassigned to supply like logistics. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, yeah, great. Um, you know, we've got some wires now we're doing Morse code thing. If we have to, um, I don't need you running back and forth, um, potentially risking your life. So, um, that's boring. Let's send you back to behind the lines. Make sure we got eggs up here. I want to make sure we got enough guns and enough flour and enough, you know, water to for everybody to drink. It's like, oh, fuck this. Like, I'm, I'm fucking Baron Von Richthofen. 
and this is boring as hell. Um, but apparently he goes and does this supply thing for just a bit, and he gets an up close look at all these brand new airplanes. Right, we're talking like yeah, we're talking like 1914-1915 time frame. So uh, 1903, right, is the first year uh, the Wilbur and Orville Wright flew, and inside of 12 years, we've got these things in war, and we're smashing. Uh, not so much smashing. Um, so he gets a look at these airplanes, and he's like, that seems pretty sexy. I kind of I like what's happening here, right? And they've been flying around for a while, and Germany actually already has a number of aces, uh, and their ace of aces is this guy named Bolkte, Bolke. <laughs> Uh, B-O, where is that? Where did I write that down at? So has... has Oswald Bolchich, B-O-E-L-C-K-E, whatever. We're obviously not that serious <laughs> about our uh, German affection here. Right, that's, that's, a hard, that's a hard language to get right, all right? Um, yeah, fuck that. I can do Spanish all day, but... Um, so he meets this guy, and this guy's got 40 kills, uh, air-to-air victories. Hmm. Wow. So um, and this guy, after talking to him, basically talks him into, hey, you should, you should try flying. Yeah. Uh, and so he does. And in October of 1915, he goes to flight school. So quick pause in the story. This guy can see what, like, like he's, he's been on the dying side of the military. Yeah. Right. With the cavalry and the horses and all that stuff. And now he's, he's skipping over the middle ground and going straight to, all right, what is the next Kind of like choosing, kind of like choosing to be an RPA pilot instead of a dying fighter pilot. Yeah, correct. If yes, if to to paint an, ana- <laughs> to paint an analogy that we may may or may not be relevant to some of our content. Just, just one analogy uh, that's possible, right? Um, Only one. So this guy sees uh, potential in different future. I think he's probably just chasing glory, like we were just talking, like looking up and you're seeing these airplanes twisting and turning, chasing each other. There's a, a certain sex appeal to that. Yeah, and from, from the ground, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's terror when you're in, in, you know, in the seat getting shot at. Uh, I think there's a reason why the models of airplanes that we have are all of the exterior. No one no one gives a shit about the internal experience or, like, looking at the instruments. It's yeah. the external distanced view of things divorced from the reality of what it means to command that. Yeah. Is, is, a, is a real thing. Anyway, back to you. Um, so he goes to uh, flight school, uh, and apparently didn't, didn't he send a badass message when he was asking for his transfer? Oh, I, I read, I read, yes. I read that like uh, so pretty pretty curtain on point. Yeah, so getting there, he he is ordered to do this like supply thing. Yeah, uh, he does for a bit and quickly like applies for another transfer this time into the air service, um, which has some horrendous German name that I'm not even going to attempt. You know, the forefather of the Luftwaffe, right? Um, but in his application and his like memos to his, you know, leadership to, to authorize him to go, uh, he writes, uh, I have not gone to war in order to collect cheese and eggs, but for another purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy wants to get into the middle of things. Um, yeah. And there's a certain, like, in times past, War and conflict was a noble's game. Like you had, you almost had to have that to earn the the respect of the nobility uh, to a certain degree, right? Um, maybe it's because that's just how you got the fancy uniform and you looked all cool. 
you know, and you had to get some cool pictures. Um, and maybe that's all bullshit. And a lot of those guys didn't actually go into battle and, and do all this, all this stuff. But, um, when you're a young 20 year old man, uh, running, you know, eggs and cheese back and forth to the front, uh, you're ready to go and you want to get into the middle, middle of things. And just, just like you and I do now, right? Like flying combat lines, doing the business is awesome. Yeah. I don't want to, uh, by any means be mistaken for comparing myself to the, the Baron, but I can, <laughs> I can sympathize with that same desire. Like I, that's what I loved about the MQ one and the MQ nine is that I was actually, you know, in the fray in a sense, yeah. like doing combat missions and not just training for them or supporting them. I wanted, I was what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, have a nine line, you know, yeah, point the end of the spear, as they say, right? Yeah. Not the shaft. Um, so he gets into, uh, aviation. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he's initially, uh, an observer. So he's the guy in the back seat. Um, you know, looking out for other enemy fighters. He's got his own little like machine gun back there, but doing reconnaissance and you know, basically supporting, uh, this thing he was in, uh, number two bomber squadron again horrendous german name uh, and flying a two-seater uh, albatross c3 um and dude honestly apparently like he was a below average pilot <laughs> during training not very good he struggled uh, well, this is a this is a correspondence with marseille on this in some <laughs> respects it's a little, little different flavor but similar arc here i think on this anyway even crashed his first airplane like <laughs> the first time he's flying solo, he smashes it into the ground. I think it was on landing, um, which was notoriously difficult to control uh, at the time. But uh, he rapidly kind of sorted it out, right? And he got his first kill, unofficial, um, sometime in uh, April of 1916, uh, shooting down some French airplane. Newport or N-I-E-U-P-O-R-T. My French is probably just as bad as my German, so I won't even try. Um, probably not as bad, but pretty bad. <laughs> uh, so he got no credit, I think, because the airplane crashed behind enemy lines. And so mm -hmm. nobody was able to like go and inspect, and, like verify and confirm the kill, you know. Um, so now he's basically just like kind of flying around two-seaters, uh, Doing his thing, not doing anything terribly uh, remarkable. The Baron sucks. Copy. Yeah, at, at, at this moment, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> as uh, I mean, you could consider him a late bloomer. If you, I mean, the kid's twenty. Uh, <laughs> so what you're saying, what you're saying is, you don't have to get fours all the way through MQT and IQT to be a good pilot. Yeah, to be the best pilot. Yeah, not even the best. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't judge uh, as early as aggressively. Anyway. All right. So uh, that Oswald Bulk, Bulk, I could have looked that up. Let's just go with Bulk. Uh, Bulk, this uh, leading German ace, is visiting the Eastern Front, uh, looking for dudes to join uh, this new squadron, uh, or his newly formed squadron, Yasta 2. Uh, and he hired Richtoven. For whatever reason, liked him. Uh, thought he was doing well. Um, but not too long after that, uh, Bulk was killed um, by <laughs> mid-air collision. So like a very unceremonious end yeah. uh, for uh, a German leading ace. And Richtofen saw that event. 
I don't know what sort of impact that might have had on him, but uh, so he's he's doing this thing. He's in Yasta too, uh, and he gets his first confirmed victory uh, by killing this dude Tom Reese uh, over France, and going back, reaching back to like the nobility uh, and kind of the the honor that was given to the enemy at the time. Um, uh, the Baron's autobiography states, uh, I honored the fallen enemy by placing a beautiful stone, or sorry, placing a stone on Tom Reese's beautiful grave because Tom was buried in uh, France and when he had the opportunity, he made it over there to yeah. uh, bury, like respect this guy and basically say, hey, good show, old boy, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a British accent, right? Clearly not. But. Sorry you're dead and don't give a shit, but... Yeah. Uh, I honor you now <laughs> after I snatched your life away. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but acknowledging the fact that that guy could have just easily shot him down. Yeah. Just, your British accent is better than your Obama accent. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. Well, Low marks for both, but it was it's, okay. it's, it's relative. We're, gra- <laughs> we're grading on a curve, Dustin. Uh, so coupled with this first kill, um, he contacts a jeweler, I think in Berlin. Yeah, Berlin. Um, and he ordered a small silver cup. Okay. And on each of these cups, so he did this for pretty much every kill that he got, right? Uh, a tiny little silver cup with the date and the type of enemy aircraft that was shot down, right? Okay. Um, so taking a little trophy, okay. creating a little trophy, a little memento uh, of these things. And he did that uh, for 60 cups. Famously, he shot down 80 confirmed kills, and that's his number for the whole of the war. Um, but after 60, like, so silver's <laughs> largely, like, unavailable. So the jeweler is basically, hey, man, I can't do this <laughs> anymore. Uh, and so he ends up with 60 of these freaking cups, um, which is awesome. Um, so he discontinues his orders, and he didn't want to, like, just accept some shitty you know, tin or some other uh, base metal that you make some of these other things out of, right? Um, Also, during this time, uh, this guy brings his brother, convinces his brother to join aviation and gets his brother into his squadron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this this guy's name is Lothar, um, who who ultimately ended up with 40 victories uh, throughout World War I, half of what his older brother did. No slouch, but... No yeah. slouch himself. Yes, no slouch himself. I mean, forty was the number that uh, uh, Bulk here had uh, throughout the war as well. Yeah. Um, before he died in that mid-air collision, but Lothar, his brother, used really kind of risky, um, strong, aggressive tactics, and uh, Manfred uh, did not. He used a much calmer, uh, more reasoned. Wait till you basically have the. The strong advantage, yeah. Uh, before dipping in, and getting your kill, um, and he called that the dicta bulka, uh, which basically states that um, it's a list of fundamental aerial maneuvers of aerial combat first formulated by that German uh, ace, um, right? So basically, like this guy's flying style, he adopted it because he was in that guy's squadron, and he continued to yeah. take it. And this dude's younger brother. You know, much like many younger brothers all over the place comes in and he's like, I got to be a little fancier. I got to do be a bit more aggressive. I got to catch up with my older brother. My bro- um, my younger brother can relate to this. 
Because so, I because I'm so awesome. <laughs> Poor Robbie. So <laughs> so Manfred is this like noted tactician, um, squadron leader, um, and apparently quite the marksman. And his preferred tactic was the classic, and maybe this is how it became classic: diving out of the sun uh, with the sun behind you, so your enemy can't see, and you have you know you they're all completely lit up. Right, there, there's no shadows, there's no uh, obscuration, and you just line them up. Brrr, quick little burst from your, you know, twin. I don't know, probably twenty caliber guns at the time. I don't know. The Sopwiths had twin Vickers. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever the equivalent uh, for the Germans would be, um, but that was his thing. And then his wingmen would uh, hang out on the side, covering his rear and his flanks while he's diving down, getting the kills. So maybe to a certain degree, this guy's kind of a jerk. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, racking up some glory uh, for himself. Not entirely sure. Um, he's got a whole bunch of German aces in his squadron uh, okay. by then um, as well. So, um, But he's just a dude getting kills at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, primarily in an albatross like D2 and D3. Now, when this he, is all pre like where the legend really took off, right? Is what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so this is all like the first like 15, 16 something kills yeah. uh, that this dude gets, right? Um, in time, he gets his, so it's January 1917, and he gets his 16th confirmed kill. Uh, and as a result, I mean, 16. I mean, there's other dudes racking up 40 kills and... You know, there's plenty of dudes ahead of him, but this dude, for whatever reason, hit 16, and 16 was kind of the line, I guess, for the awarding of the highest military honor that Germany can award, the Pour le Merite. Pour le Merite. Mm-hmm. Why the, that? The, the order Pour le Merite, yeah. Yeah, so, is that French? <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it's more commonly uh, known as the Blue Max. So basically, like, it's this blue styled iron cross looking thing um and it's big and it's the highest honor so the blue max right and that same month he assumes command of his first squadron yasta 11 the big bling with now the big squadron yeah so if you see, so if you see most pictures of them like obviously they're all in black and white they've been colorized the and, big like uh iron cross that you see oh, it's not the iron cross i guess in this it's not case. the iron cross that's World war ii's variation on that right yeah but it's the, the the neck metal that you see these dudes with correct um and so he's he assumes command of yasta 11 uh, which has a whole bunch of big names uh one of which uh if i recall correctly is uh uh, who became the German air marshal during World War II? Oh, um, I almost want to say Goebbels, but I know that's not right. No, Goebbels is uh, <laughs> the, 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 the shoot stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, big Herman, dumb, Herman big, Goering, Goering, yeah, big yeah. dummy. So Goering is in uh, Richthofen's squadron. Yeah, um, big dummy in World War II. From like a tactical. Oh, tactical didn't didn't make from good a decisions. strategic organizational right. point of view. <laughs> so and a big dummy because he's a Nazi. But it's so like I mentioned, he also has his brother in this squadron, and now like he's starting to get a lot of uh, publicity because uh, he's racking up some kills. He's the commander of this squadron. He's got this highest honor that the German military can can honor, and he's got two of these guys in the same squadron. You know, going out brothers in arms, ready to to smash the uh, the aggressor. Um, allies, 
Yeah. Um, the triple entente. Yeah. Uh, Rick Tovin, so at that point, like, I don't know, starting to feel a bit confident. Uh, He's feeling himself. <laughs> he, he paints his, his albatross aircraft here fucking red. Um, when he became that squadron commander, like, yeah, I'm the big dog. Come at me. My confidence is an all time high. Um, if you watch a movie, I think it's a 2008 movie. Uh, it at least makes the the presumption that he he wants the enemy. People are like, oh, that's gonna they're gonna know you're there. And he's like, I want them to know. I want them to fear me. I want them to see that red and have a panic attack because yeah, I'm about to swoop down and smoke them. And I think a lot of intelligence, I was reading intelligence officials balked at that and wanted it shut down, but the German Air Command let it go because they perceived it as having an effect on morale and unit cohesion, and it was, yeah. and it was worth the juice in that respect. Yeah. Uh, the His autobiography uh, states his words on this. Uh, For whatever reasons, one fine day I came upon the idea of having my crate painted glaring red. The result was that absolutely everyone could not help but notice my red bird. In fact, my opponents also seemed to be not entirely unaware of it. Yeah. Like, they knew he was out there, yeah. and he's just like, come at me, bro, and, yeah. you know, let's do this, uh, which is awesome. Like, ballsy. That's, that's some, that's some uh, BDE right there. <laughs> no. Um, so he usually flew in red-painted aircraft at that because at this time, like, they're bouncing between airplane and airplane constantly. This version, that model, this, this other manufacturer, try this one out for two weeks. We're going to do this thing. No, I don't like that. I'm going to go back to my other one, right? Because um, there's not a lot of systems on these airplanes. It's basically an engine <laughs> with a, a wire going back to the elevators and uh, some additional wires for the, the ailerons. And that's practically it. And some guns in the middle. Um, canvas. Yeah, made of canvas. Um, which, I don't know. If you take a, I mean, canvas can take probably a number of bullets, right? Yeah. Yeah, sail right through. Yeah. Um, Cool. So this guy's building uh, or flying these brightly red-painted aircraft. Um, apparently, in reality, they weren't that brightly red. They were just some form of red, but obviously, like, modelers and stuff were getting that fucker triplane, you know, painting the yeah the sides, uh, the iron cross on them. It's all based on, like, the brightest red you could possibly get to really, like, amplify that and sexify it. But uh, that was not not the case in all instances with this guy. So... Yeah, still the Red Baron. Um, as a result, other members of his squadron start painting parts of their airplane red. Um, yeah. And apparently the official reason that they provided mm. <laughs> was to like, make their leader less conspicuous. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. They're, sure they're, they're just, just as excited, right? They're having a, they like that flamboyant attitude, um, and it just kind of becomes like an indication of the unit... Morale, like you said, morale and cohesion. Um, and it's a unit identifier. Like, you know that this is Yasta 11 when these air, red airplanes show up. It's kind of like the the Red Tails, right, from World War II. Yeah. You know who yeah. that is and who's flying it, right? Yeah. And the reputation that follows. Or you have a call sign named Hellhound. Correct. That everyone knows. Correct. So there's, there's a lot to identification, and it builds that esprit de corps, which... Like basically can put rocket boosters on your organization when everybody's trying to one up each other in awesomeness, um, in whatever whatever it is that they're doing, right? So, in fact, that tradition goes all the way back to Caesar, 
who's well documented, Julius Caesar, well documented with the legions, especially the tenth equestris, and going out of their way to let them adorn their own legions with their own symbols, so that yeah. people would latch onto that and identify with it, and do ungodly, oh, in, do unhuman things in the pursuit of achieving victory for yeah. the pride of their organization. And he credited that in his diaries, in part to like letting, having the insight to let people have their own emblems and 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 identification for their units yeah. can you imagine if like the 101st airborne decided to change from the screaming eagles yeah <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. Like, you couldn't do it it's hard Not possible it's, yeah uh and kind of silly so um it's harder it's harder to do those inhuman feats or even die for an organization that doesn't have that sense of grandeur and and pride about want it that, do, that goes with that you want to live for something larger than yourself yeah and if it's right? just a if it's just a faceless unit it becomes a lot easier to think about why, you why, why, why am i dying for this bureaucratic <laughs> new uh, <laughs> yeah you know designator right <laughs> <Fuck that. laughs> um apparently uh they're in some part of this war like a lot of leave time i feel like i get the impression there was a lot of leisure in some of these some of these wars like you can get a lot of leave time to kind of go back uh behind the lines a bit and kind of float in and out yeah no, no, a, so. l- a little more so than like being deployed well so these guys were flying fighting over their own home territories right yeah so their moms all lived you know an hour and a half away <laughs> you know what i mean well british soldiers british soldiers at the somme could go on leave and there's famous stories of the white feather campaign in Britain, mm-hmm. which to mm-hmm. shame men into enlisting. And so they'd be coming back in civilian clothes on leave and getting like handed white feathers. And they're yeah. like, screw you. <laughs> I, I was just at the front, you know, backhand diplomacy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, they more so than like deploying, they, then we like, then we think about with our models. Right. Is like, yeah, they could jet back for a couple of weeks and yeah. come back and, and keep fighting. Then keep fighting, yeah. So during this time, he visits his mother, and his mom asks him, like, why he risks his life every day for to do this. Like, because aviation and these rickety-ass airplanes and, you know, dude shooting guns at you. Super risky, right? Um, and apparently he said, for the man in the trenches, because he was in, in those trenches, <laughs> right? He knows what that experience is yeah. like and how terrible it is. And he wants to, I want to ease his hard lot in life by keeping the enemy flyers away from him. I'm not sure how effective World War One aircraft were, like blasting people in trenches, and yeah, like they couldn't drop bombs worth of shit because uh, they're basically just like looking over the side and be like, "That looks about right," <laughs> and throwing them by hand, right? <laughs> basically, like large grenades. Um, but this guy had that tie; he he understood what it was that he was doing. He was basically doing what we now call defensive counter air. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, with some offensive stuff in there uh, for grins, because that's where the glory is, right? Um, but yeah, this 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 guy had a a deeper a deeper understanding of what it is he was doing and what the place of aviation was. Yeah, and like I think he probably understood that aviation is not going to hold, can't hold ground. You know what I mean? You got to have boots on the ground, and boots on the ground need to be protected by air cover which is one of our greatest things like we tout so much that no American forces have died due to the uh, action of enemy aircraft. Since World War II. 
Yeah. Korea, maybe? Maybe Korea? Vietnam? No. I mean, the real answer is September 11th, right? <laughs> sure. But the... Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, reference uh, the last episode. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, right? So our air-to-air mentality and the reason we spend all this money on F-22s and F-35s and all this is to protect the man on the ground. Well, so that they even go, can actually execute the mission. That even goes back to episode one. We were talking about valuing CAS versus air-to-air, like the, uh, that longer campaign and how air power fits into pr- yeah. protecting the ground war. Yeah, because without, without boots on the ground, like, what's the point? Yeah. Okay. Um, so he does that, and he is... He is Yasta 11 is just smashing uh, stuff. Um he led, apparently, so Bloody April is a thing, and it's, it's so much of a thing that it's made it into, like, popular songs. And things like that, right? Uh, but this is April of 1917, and in that month, Rick Tobin himself shot down 22 airplanes. That's a big number for... World War One, certainly. I mean, just just World War One, right? But like, can you imagine if we knew anybody? If there was anybody in the modern military that shot down? I mean, we don't even have any aces right now. No, I think we've we've had one air to air kill. Yeah, in I don't know since World War, the the second the first Gulf War. Yeah, I'm not sure. And that was like what 2018 over Syria. Mm. Uh, and there was a Navy guy, by the way. Um, <laughs> Mm. shooting mm. <laughs> not even air force mm. uh, <laughs> in the navy so and he famously shot down four of those 22 in a single day which you're going to tell us a story that you know, ooh, four in a day wow <laughs> and i can't wait to hear those um but at this point he's raised his official tally up to 52 so he's yeah. still getting these silver cups um and in June of that year, so April, May, June, two months later, uh, he is doing so well that, that he has made the commander of like kind of the first thing that you would call a fighter wing. Okay. Um, and he's that's four squadrons. Um, and these are highly mobile combined tactical units that could move at short notice to different parts of the front as required. And that's key. So... His new command, Yajeshwada One, uh, was composed of four squadrons, numbers 4, 6, 10, and 11. And it widely became widely known as the Flying Circus. Yeah. Um, not not related to Monty Python and the Flying Circus. That's correct. Well, um, maybe in, in so, <laughs> indirectly. <laughs> so, th- and this is, here, here comes another tie-in. So, the Flying Circus is largely due to their brightly colored aircraft, because like we said, he's painting his... Red, sure, another squadron's painting theirs blue, and everybody's got, like, their own bright colors going on for this unit morale and cohesion. And he's taking advantage of that, building this esprit de corps uh, within his units, right? Remember, this man is not even 25 yet. (laughs) As part of, like like I stated, um, highly mobile combined tactical units, they're using tents, Trains, caravans, trucks, everything 
that they've got to be able to move their operations quickly and dynamically um, to wherever they're needed yeah. most on the front, right? Um, so because of the tents, you know, there's an immediate tie into Flying Circus, but this sounds a lot like agile combat employment to me. You know what I mean? They're yeah. packing it up and they're moving. Yeah. Um, when they need to and they're bringing the, the equipment with them, I'll bet you he's out there like, checking on stuff, doing a little bit of maintenance himself. I mean, he's, he's, he's a commander of four squadrons now, so maybe not, but his pilots probably are, right? Because they have a vested interest. So they've got this like multi-domain airman thing going on or the... Yes. You know? <laughs> well, what is, what's the other term? What's the other term we have uh, now where like one airman does two jobs? I don't know. I don't know. Not Multidisciplinary more. airman, maybe. Um, but... Super hot right now in the in the modern military, and it's like we're trying to go back to this thing that we forgot with all of our industrialized mites and the and way we <laughs> fixed facilities and yeah, uh, launching and that, from stri- strategic command and yeah, I've got to have these twelve thousand foot runways and five bajillion guys to support just to get the bombs and the fuel on board. Just a little and, shoestring operation, instead, right? Yeah, right. And now we're trying to figure out this agile combat employment to include like agile raptor and things like that where you fly a c-17 with a, a couple fuel bladders and you refuel your raptors somewhere and then yeah it's like sounds great and i like it we treat it as it's like this new concept as it feels that way like the way when we talk about it now um everything old is new again yeah <laughs> yeah people have been doing this for Years, Plato, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so that this I'm is not, where I'm not gonna go. This is where the uh, flying circus mentality comes from, and there. So, there's a lot to learn from knowing history, right? And as I stated, I, I couldn't even go to the 29th and ask somebody how many kills Ira Bong has. He flew a shitty P38. <laughs> it's not this cool. It's a sure. Mustang. Sure. Um, Sorry, but, P38's awesome. <laughs> P thirty eight is great. I know. I I don't even know why I said that. But if you just to be classic, just to be a punk, classic uh, cliche line. Those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. Right. Um, oh, very deep. <laughs> so if you know, if you can kind of study this stuff, you can maybe learn from R- Manfred von Richthofen and be yelling about agile combat employment thirty years ago. You know, I mean, obviously the types of conflicts we've been involved in are dramatically different. We're not fighting over top of our. Uh, our own homelands, and we got big, massive metal yet. airplanes that I can't move <laughs> yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, Red Dawn. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we can't just <laughs> move our airplanes willy-nilly. I mean, I mean, maybe we can. They have wings and they have engines. They can fly, right? Um, but they need specialized maintenance. They need specialized... Ooh, you got a chip in the paint. Ooh, they're going to be down for a month while I get some more radar-absorbing material. Um, it's called an aircraft carrier muff. That also works. That's true. So you say the Navy's got a yeah, got a different mentality there, and they can just move wherever they need to go. I don't even think that's that's that easy. And I mean, how hard are you? How it's it's almost just, impossible to move these days. I'm just chucking Molotov cocktails. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you could move these days? Like what? If you moved any significant portion of your force at all to include a couple squadrons, could you do it sneakily? No. Satellite coverage and yeah, no. I don't. I mean, I just thinking about now. No, I don't. I think it'd be 
Yeah, I don't think you could. Ridiculous effort. Yeah. To try and make it all quiet and sneaky. Um, you could probably do it on a limited scale. Um, in like 2018, they tried to move tankers from one location in uh, CENCOM to another to kind of forward deploy them. Um, spread around. But it was this big like, we even like announced this this whole big thing. But obviously, we weren't fighting another Air Force or really a competent military um, of any sorts. But anyway, that is uh, the basics of how like this flying circus comes up. And I'll wrap up. Dude just keeps racking up kills. Everything is great. He's training the shit out of his pilots to you know be calm, use patience, tactical patience attack when you have the advantage. Um, and he led by example uh, and force of will rather than inspiration, right? So he was actually in the cockpit flying the mission, doing the thing. Why does everybody love Robin Olds so much? Because he flew the mission and his mustache. And his mustache, yeah. Like his middle finger to the rest of the Air Force, right? Yeah. And he's over there uh, doing Operation Bolo and... Things like that, but he is heavily involved. This is the wing commander of this deployed wing, right, out there crushing enemy souls. It is it's hard to express, I think, how important that is. Yes. I find it tremendously important. Yes. If you want to be if you want to be a leader, you need to be competent in all the roles. Yeah, uh, that exist within that realm, and naturally, you're not going to be the best. Well, if you're Baron von Richthofen, yes, when people are like airplanes are less than twenty years old, right? <laughs> uh, and there's there is no bar to be met, right? You're just going out there. Crushing. When everything is so unknown that the talent carries you rather than the science of it, right? Right, right. and the instinct of it carries you. Yes. Um, so he's often described as distant, unemotional, rather humorless. <laughs> Though uh, a lot of other people thought it otherwise. Like, this is probably just, I mean, when you have any sort of person who's like two, three uh, ranks or, you know, positions in the organizational structure above you, they're not going to have this, like, super cordial attitude to you, right? Um, well, he's a Prussian. How fun could he be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps doing this thing. Uh, eventually racks up to 80 kills. And... Um, he gets wounded in July of 1917. So this yeah. is like second month as a squadron commander. He takes a bullet to the head. Oh, is that fast? I didn't realize. Yeah. yeah. So June of 1917, he's given command. And in July, uh, was this of the wing or the squadron? Uh, the wing. The wing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what does it say? It's a serious head wound. My understanding is like this bullet kind of grazed his head. Um, Probably did some damage to his skull, but it didn't like actually penetrate to get to the brain to like really wreck him, right? Um, but it was apparently enough to give him like partial blindness and <laughs> all kinds of uh, other crazy stuff. And apparently, he was able to sounds like a little more than a graze. <laughs> well, a graze with a bullet doing I don't know five hundred miles an hour or whatever yeah. the muzzle velocity is of these airplanes, right? Um, it's a lot of energy packed in there, so yeah, fair I don't enough. know. Fair um, enough. But he like went into a spin. Is like able to like eventually recover, pull himself out of this this spin, uh, and landed uh, in a field in friendly territory. Um, it took a lot of operations uh, to remove bone splinters from the impact area. But uh, in time, 
he returned some, some grace. <laughs> so <laughs> check this date out. Um, on the 6th of July, he takes this wound. And the Red Baron returned to active service against the doctor's orders on 25 July. 19 days later, this dude took a bullet to the head. Yeah. <laughs> and inside of three weeks, he's like, nope, I'm out. Um, and went, went back to flying. And he flew through all of August uh, and then finally went on convalescent leave in like September to October. And this dude's legit badass. Um, it probably caused him like... You know, nausea and headaches and stuff later in his uh, career. Um, and some say that uh, a change in temperament. Uh, and there's a theory linking this all to his eventual death, which I want to talk about, right? So he received, he died on April, 21st of April, 1918, um, uh, near the Somme River. Um, he was, he'd been flying uh, at very low altitude, uh, and pursuing a stop with camel flown by this pilot uh, named Wilfred May of number 209 Squadron of the Royal Air Force, uh, who had just fired on the Red Baron's cousin, uh, Wolfram von Richthofen. Um, He's rolling deep with the fam, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. Brought him all over. He's like, all right, listen, I'm, I'm crushing it over here. Let's all, let's all bring it over here. Um, he pursued this dude... Uh, Across the river, and then attacked by another camel pilot, um, this guy named Arthur Roy Brown. Um, and apparently, this guy had dived steeply at very high speed to intervene, and then had to uh, climb steeply to avoid hitting the ground. Great. Um, he Richtofen avoided that attack, uh, resumed his pursuit of May. Like, come on, man, you got another dude chasing you. Like, I'm I'm gonna drop the uh, the other guy that I'm just casual, like casually chasing out of maybe like a fit of rage after seeing my cousin get shot at, right? Um, Richtofen eventually died uh, when a single 303 uh, bullet hit him in the chest, severely damaging his heart and lungs. Um, his aircraft stalled and went into a steep dive the ground uh, and the dude died in his cockpit now the debate here is where did this bullet come from mm, yeah. yeah yeah all did, the post-war analysis of correct this, yeah did it come from uh canadian captain roy brown here did was this guy the uh somebody finally defeat the ace of aces uh the greatest fighter pilot anybody has known to this time or did he just get hit by a triple a or the equivalent of AAA, or dudes on the ground just firing up at these airplanes uh, flying low altitude. It's, it's unknown. Nobody's ever really going to know. Um, and that's largely going to be the, the end of this guy's story. Um, he is still... like This is one of the, f- the few pilots that anybody will know the name of, right? Well, we all know his real claim to fame was getting into a dogfight with the Snoopy, the Snoopy, the <laughs> progenitor of the twentieth and guardian angel of the twentieth attack squadron. Yeah, correct. Um, and all the rest of this is crap because, well, not crap, but like all the rest of his accolades. That's the most important thing, <laughs> um, and gave Snoopy his claim to fame. So that is what made him famous, right? <laughs> I mean, probably that's what I know Snoopy for. Um, yeah. 
sitting atop his little red doghouse. Um, yeah. But that's Manfred von Richthofen. And remember, he died at age 25. Uh, when I was 25... When I was 25, I was... What year would that have been? 2007? Starting OTS in August of that year. So... Graduated college two years prior, screwing around, having a good old time. Yeah, I couldn't get into the academy. Didn't try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. And that was, and that just... was it, it's interesting to see, like, and this guy was running four squadrons of some of the most highly effective squadrons in combat uh, at the time, right? And created this stable, this, just this vast stable of aces that you know went on to become other things like you know air marshals uh, during world war ii yeah. etc so counterfactual like what happens if ron von richthofen does not die yeah yeah the, the all the prussian stuff is carried over and he's able to develop the german air force and the inner inner warriors yeah yeah because mm. he was basically like king shit of the air force at that time right yeah um and he definitely would have gone on and probably remained uh, involved. Probably not this Herman Goring guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, who, yeah, sure, great dunce. Maybe made a lot of tactical mistakes. And maybe Von Richthofen would have lived long enough to become the, the villain. You know what I mean? Or be the guy that made the mistakes that, I mean, who knows? But it's certainly interesting. I have a, I have a feeling that this, think about. that this guy named, you may have heard of him, Adolf Hitler, was probably a pretty, pretty dead set on some stuff he wanted to accomplish in World <laughs> War II with, with the Luftwaffe, regardless yeah. of uh, you know what some general maybe had to say about what made sense. Right. Um, but just a hunch, you know. I mean, he's probably a little, a little commandeering, a little domineering personality. There. <clears throat> I'm curious if the German Luftwaffe <laughs> would have been more effective with von Richthofen, because Richthofen was famous for, like, he was helping out on, like, designing new airplanes and yeah. stuff like that because he needed an airplane that turns tighter and maybe, like, it goes a little bit slower if he needed to. And this is where the Fokker he, Wolf triplane... He, or the, he, yeah, he downgraded, right, or wanted a slower plane that yeah. could turn, and he recognized that. It yeah. turned tighter, tighter turn radius. And that's where the Fokker triplane comes in, which, by the way... Is not the airplane he got the vast majority of kills in. The Albatross. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the two-wing uh, biplane, Albatross uh, D three. I think is probably his primary steed. Right. It was towards the end of the war that he did this Fokker triplane thing that everybody's latched onto as like the Red Baron. Um, he probably was flying a Fokker when he got shot. What a fucker. <laughs> um, Had to do it. Low hanging so, fruit, bro. So maybe, uh, <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe that's justified as to why it's so popular. But that is Manfred von Richthofen. Um, aviation exemplar. Uh, somebody you should know about and somebody who saw things uh, a little earlier uh, than others. And, and maybe you would call him an innovator. I don't know if he had really innovative tactics. He's just employing the tactics of the Bolka guy, whose name I Refining obliterated f- 10 times prior to this. Uh, but yeah, he saw a future in aviation, abandoned the old way of fighting war, and went on to the new thing, which is awesome. 
which is what we're trying and to do. Carried the RPA a, and carried a big burden at a young age in terms of his organizational yeah. responsibilities. It's almost unfathomable. Yeah, I, uh, I can't imagine us. running one squadron yeah. like at the age of 25, let alone four, yeah. you know. Um, and then also having to deal with the fame, um, like the press and stuff. Ah, yeah. Uh, I mean, apparently this guy had dinners with like the Kaiser and stuff like that, <laughs> which is, which is wild. Can you imagine like just being like a group commander and being called by the president? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, there were uh, a few effective pilots in world war two as well. And I'm going to talk about Hans Joachim Marseille, yellow 14, also known as the star of Africa. Um, and who Hartman, the leading ace of all time and, uh, and of the Luftwaffe in terms of numbers of kills, said was in fact the best pilot uh, in the Luftwaffe. Certainly the most notable fighter pilot for the Germans in World War II. And in my opinion, when you look at his whole personality, his whole story, uh, the best fighter pilot of all time, even though he's German. Potentially. So was he always yellow 14? I No. Okay. That was with his height in the desert war in okay. North Africa. Okay. Um, but he joined the Luftwaffe uh, kind of in the 1938 pre-war before the Battle of Britain, went through fighter school and got exemplaries on both of his, his flight checks, essentially. But yeah. he almost got kicked out even in flight school for... Uh, womanizing and being a drunk and being like essentially having to be forced to ORM out of training sorties and stuff because he was up all night with his lady friends. Yeah. And he was always wheeling a bunch of women. Too tired, um, a little hungover. Yeah, too, ti- too tired, too <laughs> yeah. hungover, but an excellent pilot. But he some they somehow pushed him through. And this is with the Germans and the German discipline. Um, so he... Uh, Must have been exceptionally exemplary. Yes. Um, but... Ran into some trouble, too, once he got operational. So he got put... He was fighting in the Battle of Britain, uh, flying a BF-109E Messerschmitt. Yeah. And uh, notable for... Basically, he would break with his wingmen and just go dive into the action and shoot stuff down. He got (laughs) shot down many times in the Battle of Britain and, like, never died, but, like... Like over the coast and like yeah, over, over the, the water. coast yeah. and like bail out and swim across the channel and report in for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he, yeah, there's a number of stories from his Battle of Britain time. Um, yeah, where he would essentially leave his wingman in the dust, go shoot someone down, get shot down in the process, and then like his wing lead, right, would get killed or something yeah. like that. And he would get reprimanded and be never down. leave your wingman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And he was not about that, right? Um, yeah, it says the the act like all these acts were not praised by his unit. He would come back expecting, you know, some praise for having shot down some stuff, and he'd yeah. be getting served a reprimand for breaking with orders. And one time, he even broke with orders to save his flight lead. After his flight lead had basically said, "Leave me behind and go, uh, go everybody else RTB," yeah. and he turned around and shot down the guy um, who was trying to kill his flight lead, and his flight lead served him when he got back for breaking orders which is kind of a oh no shit yeah <laughs> see germans man <laughs> they're not yeah. fucking around they with the discipline serious about that yeah um so eventually uh his squadron commander got so fed up with him that he took his exemplary flight or uh his exemplary uh flight examination records and ripped it up in front of him and was like you're a shit pilot i hate you 
and uh, like, and you can't work with you. And they transferred him to JG27, uh, which is essentially a group. I think uh, I'm not going to pronounce the. Oh come on! I, I was trying it. I think it's <laughs> Jagishu. <laughs> <laughs> Jagashwada or some yeah. shit like yeah, that. Jagashwada. Yeah. Um, but JG27. And um, so he kind of had this whole ignominious start to his career, very mixed, a lot of reprimands. But, yeah. but everyone noted he was a great pilot. And also during this whole Battle of Britain time, he's also womanizing, also drinking, getting ORM'd out of sorties too during the Battle of fucking Britain too. Yeah. Um, they transfer him to this. JG27, which is led by a guy named Newman. And Newman. Newman, yeah. Uh, Newman, I don't know. But. Uh, Neumann? Yeah. And they, they connected. Like Neumann, we'll go with that. Neumann kind of understood him. And he said in his memoirs, Neumann, the, uh, of uh, Marseille, that he, he could be one of two things the best fighter pilot the world has ever seen or a disciplinary blot. Right, like a blot of, you know, and uh, and he was like, and I resolved to help him become the greatest fighter pilot of all time. And, uh, and like, he kind of gave him a little more leash and let, put him in a more leadership position because one of the things that some historians think about Marseille is that he was, that the, the commanders in the Battle of Britain were also, like, kind of relegating him to a wingman role yeah. and pushing him down for their own glory, which was frustrating him and causing him to act out with yeah, all yeah. this stuff, too. Um, but he kind of gave him more of like a flight lead role. It's like he knew he was good. Uh, yeah. So he was just lashing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they went down to the JG-27 got transferred to Africa. And he got shot down a couple more times while also <laughs> shooting down some other guys. So at the beginning of his career, he's just like one for one, like yeah, on yeah. a lot of stuff. And Neumann encouraged him to like train himself like mentally spiritually and physically um and what marseille would start doing is would on their rtbs he would practice tactics and aiming like essentially when they're in formation on yeah. the rtbs um and he started racking up kills more and more and more could this be dedicated air crew training <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he, he did it on his <laughs> he did it on his own um but yeah um you have mandated on RTB. You yeah, have one hour yeah. to do. Um, <laughs> cool, yeah. Neumann says when he first got him, yeah, his hair was too long, and he brought with him a list. Of, he brought with him a list of disciplinary punishments as long as your arm. Marseille was tempestuous, temperamental, and unruly. Thirty years later, he would have been called a playboy. But they go. They get transferred to North Africa, and he kind of gets a fresh start. So he develops these tactics of taking on bomber formations that the RAF in particular was using in North Africa. Yeah. Where they would fly in a circle so that all the other bombers could guard yeah, each what other. Was that, what was that called? Uh, I remember escapes me right that. now. Uh, it's like some guy's name. Yeah. I'll remember it's it later. The, yeah. the brain gnomes will find it uh, somewhere in a filing cabinet in the back of my brain here in a little okay. bit when it's too late. Um, <laughs> But what he would do is he would he would dive down between the bomber formation, risking himself, like down in through the middle of the circle, and then cir cut throttle, drop full flaps, which basically only he could really do this. And then as he was climbing back up, turning tight circles within the larger bomber formation, yeah. would use deflection shooting 
where he couldn't even see the aircraft to shoot down these bombers as he was like coming up between the circle. Okay. So he would circle up within the circle of bombers. Yeah. And shoot them as he was doing this. Okay, so he's inside their turn. They are maybe ahead of him, but they're below his nose. But he knows that they're going to be flying into his yeah. bullets yeah. Uh, out in front. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's, some, that's some serious, like... Yeah, and he was <laughs> renowned for being the best marksman in the Luftwaffe when it came to that kind yeah. of thing. Like, the, no other pilots were able to, like, hit targets the way he could with mere seconds. Yeah. Um, he was also an extraordinarily skilled dogfighter. Um, there's accounts of... He, like, he would go out on multiple sorties a day with the with his JG-27 Yellow 14 Messerschmitt yeah. and would be on each sortie racking up five or six fighter and bomber kills yeah. on each one and totaled, I think, 17 on his on a single day. Um, it's putting uh, Richtoven's four in a single day. Yeah. He, <laughs> it's he, a shame, right? Yeah, he ended up totaling uh, 158 uh, kills. Um One of the things that, besides the flying, like if you look at his story, he um, near the end of the war, the Germans were like plane to plane, about eight to one ratio in, in the desert war there. Uh, kill ratio, or they uh, had eight fewer planes. Eight fewer planes, yeah. or, or you know, one or plane ratio. for every eight yeah. that the that the RAF was fielding, and so they were having to fly at this frenetic pace, um, and it ground him down at the end. Um, and he was never really, he was never shot down kind of once he hit his stride yeah. and started racking up his big numbers in 1942. Okay. Um, what he would do that was interesting. He, uh, when he would shoot someone down kind of similar to how Richtofen had a lot of respect for, um, the pilots that he shot down and however you were describing. So he would drive out to the place where he shot down someone and would go pick up the pilot himself. And then they would go back and party at, (laughs) at his base that night and would drink and get like piss black drunk, blackout drunk together. Um, And then the next day he would go fly low, like low high speed pass over the RAF base to drop a note out the window that's to basically say like, Hey, I've got this guy and he's I've got your boy. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He's being treated <laughs> or like if the guy was dead or he, if he died yeah. due to injuries after the fact, he would go drop a note. And the uh, Neumann had express orders for him to like, not do that. And he just piss off. I'm doing it anyway. And he would yeah. take up his yellow 14 and go just drop these notes off getting shot at with AA flack the whole time just to like drop these notes off because that's what he wanted to do. Um, it's, it's a noble thing to do, right? Yeah. I mean, he's not, He's not looking at these guys as uh, villains. Yeah. Right. They're just other human beings that are put into a similar role that he is. And I don't know if we're going toe to toe and uh, big ups to you if you get me. And, uh, but I'm probably going to get you, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but you know, respect for, for being one to take to the air, and I can respect the the fact that you you are also a pilot, and you you understand, yeah, what it is that we're doing here. And he was, he had become such a personality in the German press, and 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 such a big, like morale boost to his own squadron, mm-hmm. 
that essentially like they his wingmen didn't even engage at a certain point they just kind of like hang out and as they say like their goal was to just kind of back up the maestro and watch him just score kill after kill after kill and like basically watch the horizon make sure no one was coming in and just let him go tank everything <laughs> so he was like racking up the majority of jg 27's kills like yeah. all the time at this point um, but near the end um in september 42 two of his friends got killed who were also aces, and he got really depressed. Um, and then... What year? 42. 42, okay. And uh, he... Um, and they were flying, like, multiple missions a day, I think, like, three. And like I said, he was racking up multiple kills yeah, in yeah. each one. So he was getting physically exhausted. And they say on this last kill... Um, Marseille, according to his own post-battle accounts, had been engaged by a Spitfire pilot in an intense dogfight that began at high altitude and descended to low level. Marseille recounted how both he and his opponent strove to get onto the tail of the other. Both succeeded and fired, but each time the pursued managed to turn the table on his attacker. Finally, with only 15 minutes of fuel remaining, he climbed into the sun. Classic tactic, right? <laughs> and then... Um, the RAF fighter followed and was caught in the glare. Marseille executed a tight turn and roll and fired from 100 meters range. The Spitfire caught fire and shed a wing. Marseille wrote, that was the toughest adversary I've ever had. His turns were fabulous. I thought it would be my last fight. Unfortunately, the pilot and his unit remained unidentified. And he came back from that um, visibly white and like just collapsed afterwards. Yeah. Um, but then shortly thereafter... Essentially, the Luftwaffe bureaucracy had mandated that the BF-109Fs that they were flying at the time were to be replaced by BF-109Gs. Okay. And the Gs were, and Marseille had, and Neumann had tried to stiff arm these because they were known to have engine malfunctions. And so, eventually they were forced to take these on, even though that they knew that they were not, they were problematic. Yeah. And uh, the way that Marseille died is his engine caught fire and was spraying oil and smoke all into the cabin on an RTB. Yeah. And uh, he was went to bail out, but because of all the smoke in the cockpit, was not able to see that his he had gone vertical, pointing down at the earth when he bailed out. Yeah. And then he hit as he bailed out. He his they think his he was hit by the vertical stab. And never deployed a shoot. So either he was knocked unconscious or killed by the impact yeah. of the vertical stab and fell all the way to his death. Um, so another kind of ignominious end, kind of like Richtofen. Yeah. Um, well, um, no, like Bolka, who had that as oh, collision. Bolka, Bolka especially. Um, um, Richtofen died in his cockpit. Yeah. Coming from some other pilots, what they said about him is, he was the most amazing and ingenious combat pilot I ever saw. He was also very lucky on many occasions. He thought nothing of jumping into a fight outnumbered 10 to 1, often alone, with all of us trying to just play catch-up with him. He violated every cardinal rule of fighter combat. He abandoned all the rules, and only he could do it. Um, another one. All the enemy were shot down by Marseille in a, <laughs> in a turning dogfight. As soon as he shot, he needed only to glance at the enemy plane. His pattern of gunfire began at the front, the engine's nose, and consistently ended in the cockpit. How he was able to do this, not even he could explain. With every dogfight, he would throttle back as far as possible and lower flaps. This enabled him to turn tighter turns than any other pilot could. His expenditure of ammunition was a mere 360 rounds per aircraft, sh uh, 360 rounds, 60 per aircraft on this particular sortie. Well, in a air-to-air -air fight, like once you've reached the merge, right, 
it becomes a turning fight. Yeah. And whoever can turn tightest is going to be able to bring that nose around fastest to bring the, uh, the business end. Yeah. So he was flying at basically near stall speed. Yeah. And because, and basically he would flip a bitch yeah. And then because of his accuracy and his predictive abilities could like in a two second burst yeah. fire a lethal shot before he, his crosshairs came off of it. And that's what made him so deadly. Um, when he died, they basically disbanded JG 27 because everybody was on like suicide watch. <laughs> They're all depressed. Yeah. Cause yeah. they, and the unit was so built around his personality that they couldn't continue, which is, yeah. um, at that point, Dude. right? Like his legend was so he was he was actually irreplaceable for that yeah. unit, um, which I know everyone says everyone's irreplaceable. Eh, Marseille was not for JG twenty seven. Yeah, um, everybody is replaceable. Yeah. So the the other very interesting thing about him, besides the the kind of the playboy womanizing chip on his shoulder stuff that he mm -hmm. had. Um, he carried that forward. Well, it's not besides that, but he, he expressed that in other ways. So there's some very interesting stories of him interacting with Hitler, actually, <laughs> where um, there's two occasions. One, um, he was getting or given the Iron Cross with Diamond Cluster, which is the highest one that you could be given, I yeah. believe. That's right. And he was at a party in Berlin for this, going back from the front, as we discussed earlier. And uh, before Hitler walked in, he was playing ragtime, which is not down with the not, yeah, Nazi party. Yeah, he's playing jazz. Yeah, he's playing jazz. And um, Hitler walked in, and he looked right at Hitler and kept playing. And I think uh, some of the other officials there like turned ghost white, and Hitler turned red and walked out. But he didn't do anything because to reprimand Marseille was to reprimand a national hero. Yeah. And uh, he's just not about not about a lot of that Nazi stuff. Yeah, and to they, a certain extent, like you just transcend. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he was definitely into that and and you know, kind of flouting that even yeah. to even to the man Hitler yeah. himself. Um, and then there was another occasion where Hitler was present at a party that he was at, and he was asked in the presence of Hitler why he hadn't joined the Nazi party because Marseille never joined the party. Yeah, and Marseille said, "Well, if." Uh, if you see a party that's worth joining, uh, let me know if it's got a lot of women at it and I might consider. Yeah. He said, and Hitler walked out of the room again. Yeah. <laughs> from Marseille. Um, he also had a Batman, which is an assistant. Um, that's more of a British term, but yeah, like yeah. A, a, an adjutant, if one might. Adjutant, yeah. Yeah, an adjutant. What's um, the this our episode of Archer where... Uh, Woodhouse. Woodhouse is a Batman during yeah. World War One. Yeah. Reggie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was a South African, uh, I think Latuku was his name, uh, okay. a black guy, which is obviously not down yeah. for, for the Nazis either, if um, if we know anything about Jesse Owens and the Berlin Olympics, right? right. Um, and he refused to let this guy be transferred or taken away. Um, and it's basically insisted like, I won't fly for you unless I have Latuku with me and they were inseparable. Yeah. And he just like kept this guy and they would party in their room and he just didn't <laughs> give a fuck about any of the Nazi policies or anything like that. And like Neumann kind of like let that go and provided top cover for him. But, um, I wonder where you would meet a South African 
Yeah, I'm not sure where it came from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have to look it up. Black man in a, in a Nazi. Yeah, Nazi uh, war unit. Yeah, um, Latuku actually went to JG27 reunions until his death in 1984. Oh, no kidding. Um, but probably would too. Yeah, that's. I mean, I kind of glossed over some of the the martial exploits, but I think we get the picture. Would be um, martial exploits uh, combat of, of Marseille. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's accounts of him shooting down two or three planes in a single pass, yeah. right? And and just in, just insanity in terms of the numbers, though. And right, the num- there are some German pilots that racked up larger numbers. Carl uh, Hartman, is that yeah. his name? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about. I mean, Novotny is the one I'm thinking of on the Eastern Front, but all of all of Marseille's kills were against legitimate like co-equal RAF allied pilots, not the, like Spitfires, Kitty Hawks, yeah. Hurricanes. He was not going against, you know, Sturmovic's turkey shoot on the Eastern Front, like yeah. uh, like Novotny. And I believe Hartman, although I don't know. Yeah, most of Hartman's stuff is on the... Yeah. So like his Eastern 158 front. is hard, hard one in a way that some of these other ones, they were uh, a little more polarized in terms of their the relative advantage they had over the Soviet yeah the Soviet Air Force um, I think it's interesting because Rick uh, both Rick Defen and Marseille kind of have there's this kind of ambiguity around their their death yeah um, or, or like you know at least Marseille was not shot down in his prime might they might say right yeah and uh, Rick Defen right was triple a right and I think that's I mean, is that Maybe. key? Is, the, is that key to their legends that they weren't like bested in air-to-air combat at the end? Do you think? Maybe. I, I kind of don't think so. Um, it's literally just the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> right. And in Marseille's case, probably the the flamboyancy of his personality, all stuff tied together, and, like, and the flamboyance of his flying style. Right? Yeah. Um, I read a brief quote. Uh, apparently, like some some dude Hans Arnold. Let's put the Germans in the Hans dash, whatever. We got Hans Joaquin, <laughs> and then we got a Hans Arnold. Um, but Hans Arnold recalled a conversation he had with him. Um, during which Marseille like, explained his tactics and thought, like, I often experience combat as it should be. I see myself in the middle of a British swarm, firing from every position and never getting caught. Our craft are basic elements. Stahlschmidt. That's, in, which, that's, that's his friend, a fellow ace. Yeah. He's talking to his friend. Gotcha which have got to be mastered. You've got to be able to shoot from any position, left turns, right turns, out of a roll, on your back, whatever. And it's only this way that you can develop your own particular tactics. Um, Basically meaning that the enemy simply can't anticipate what you're going to do in any moment. I think that quote finishes with attack tactics that the enemy simply cannot anticipate during the course of the battle. A series of unpredictable movements and actions, never the same, always stemming from the situation at hand. Only then can you plunge into the middle of an enemy swarm and blow it up from the inside. Yeah. And that's what he did, like, day <laughs> after day after day, multiple times a day. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I really appreciate about him is is that flamboyancy. And, that, like, there's a there's something about, I think, just ingrained in the DNA of what it means to be an airman. Mm-hmm. 
uh, or it should be this way and should continue to be this way of what it means to be an airman and a, and a, and a warrior in the air. Um, it's a little bit of recalcitrance, a little bit of personality and bucking the system and just just a little bit of a not quite you know wanting to toe the line right for the for the man right to go fly these planes hurtling through the air right? i think air power is inextricably linked to this kind of pugnaciousness that marseille uh, i think of all fighter pilots exemplified the most yeah um, i mean we see this in like olds and uh, you know other pilots mm-hmm. as well who and jaeger and people like that right um and I, I just think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something very, we, we, something so precious that we can never lose, right? Is that, that sense of having a chip on your shoulder as an airman about being a little bit skeptical of the way things are done, a little bit individualized in your style, yeah. right? Um, and, and wanting to kind of push the boundaries of the rules, uh, the system, if you would, or the bureaucracy, um, to, to get shit done in the air. We, and, and, and we desperately seem to want to like we, turn air aerial combat of all flavors into a science. Yes. And I think that at its core, it's not there. There is a science ish to it. And we set we set all these rules and there's a lot of science that goes into the, de- the development of the aircraft and the weapons and, Things like that, but fundamentally, there's a certain inventiveness that has to happen in air-to-air combat and aviation in general may be better classified as something of an art. Yeah. And when I read things like the 3-3 and all the, (laughs) every little like decision tree that somebody wants to pump in there, right? Um about when to use this system and when to use that system. And like, I, I can appreciate the mentality like for teaching. It might guys. be a starting point. Yeah. But there, there is, there is an art to this whole thing. And it's, you're not going to be able to stitch all that stuff together in, in in any artful way until you know each individual piece. Right. But after that, ignore it to a certain degree. Know, know what they are and be able to implement them. But I, will, I want people to be able to identify different ways of doing things and to do them quickly and efficiently. I remembered what that circle is called. Yeah. A Luffberry circle. A Luffberry circle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it reminds me of things like with that, you're talking about the unit uh, emblems and pride and a little bit. It reminds me of like, colored patches on a flight suit. I'm not trying to get into the A2CU <laughs> conversation. Like colored flat, colored patches on a flight suit being yeah. a little bit flamboyant, right? Wearing your pencil tab that's not approved, right? No like, fat chicks. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like I think I think that's just and, and I mean it goes to like nose art on World War II planes that, you know, was mm-hmm. not approved and just kind of done. I think it's just such fundamentally a part of the DNA of air power. Um and I, I get it in full technicolor when I think about the Marseille story and the need to preserve, actively preserve that stuff despite the increasingly technocratic and top-down yeah. nature of our 
Technocratic is a good word. The way air power is pursued these days. Yeah. Um, Do you see... So all these guys are turning inside of everybody else, right? Marseille and Richtofen. Marseille was 22 when he died, by the way. Oh, 22. Yeah. It was 158 kills. Uh, I was still in college. Yeah. Screwing around, having a good time. Um, As was I. Future airplanes. So we already know that airplanes can outperform the human body. Yes. Right? Uh, I think F-16s are already modulating. Like So they started modulating pilot inputs in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and the F-22 can very much squish the pink body in terms of what the airframe is capable of. Right, right. So if getting air-to-air kills uh, basically comes down to be able to turn tighter, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, what happens when you take that body out? Turn more tight. Super tight. <laughs> you know what I mean? So to speak. <clears throat> right? I'm curious. <laughs> uh, if you could go 13, 14 Gs um, throughout all of that uh, and what that means for future combat uh, with unmanned, unmanned airplanes and what's going to be lost. So when we go there, all of this, the humanness of... Uh, the art of aerial combat and the flamboyance and the uh, colored patches and the brightly colored airplanes and the, the cool nicknames might all go away. Commoditized. Yeah, the irony of this is not escaping me in the sense that like, we've been talking about commoditization and kind of got a little bit of a <laughs> fighters are behind the times vibe and yet we're sitting yeah. here like the, the paragons of yesteryear. Right. Uh, holding up the uh, the awesomeness of that. That's a little bit of a contradiction, I, I think, at least from us on this podcast, about yeah. talking about that and thinking it's cool, uh, given our other intellectual commitments. But So why has air-to-air combat largely gone away, do you think? Like, we have it. We have the, the capability. I mean, no one's putting up planes... For us to shoot down. Yeah, did we just become so dominant that it's pointless? And, th- and this is one of the arguments for these guys like Carl Hartman uh, and Hans-Joachim Marseille. They were able to rack up such high numbers because their air force was so limited, right? They were good. They were definitely good, and they had uh, enough skill, but they were also flying... Yeah, to the point three of three to four. To the point of being broken physically. Yeah, like in the case, certainly in the case of Marseille. And the Allies are putting up, you know, eight and ten, ten airplanes for every one that the Germans can. So, so there's yeah, he, a, was, he was sleepwalking uh, from stress and doing a bunch of stuff like near the end, uh, like on meds and things like that. Yes, yeah. from the stress and the we might call com- post traumatic stress now, sure. right? But. Uh, not post, it's just traumatic stress disorder yeah, yeah, yeah. at that point. But yeah. um, but is there anything to say about the fact that the numbers were so skewed? You eat all of these guys with yeah. triple-digit kills had a lot of targets, a lot of potential targets, right? Yeah. Um, and they also didn't have to go very far. So all these guys are flying four or five, six-hour sorties trying to get to Berlin or to get to... You know, wherever in Africa yeah. uh, to execute. Now you've got this fresh young guy coming up with a fresh airplane full of gas, full of bullets. Yeah. And there's 150 planes for him to go. Yeah. You know, and pick up 17 kills in a day. I don't mean to detract 
from these from uh, either of these two guys that we have uh, talked about. But it's worth noting. Yeah, how many aces never got to you know in the in the eighties never you know would be aces just never got to see combat. Yeah, like that. Yeah, from the United States. Yeah, or even like why why our highest guy has got fifty right. Yeah. Probably because he was flying against fewer airplanes. He had fewer targets to go pick off. Yeah, could have been in the, yeah, many hundreds potentially. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> All right, so I think that's going to wrap up a uh, discussion on these uh, two German uh, or Prussian pilots, uh, if you will. Like I said, I promise there'll be some uh, uh, future discussion of guys like Ira Bong and uh, Robin Olds and. Uh, some we'll visit something a little less history nerd and do something crunchy or philosophical, but we will come back to this yeah. for sure. Yeah, or I mean, we're gonna have a long running series of small history uh, interlopings. Yeah. Uh, Get here. up for it, bitches. Yeah. Um, our it. dear audiences are not uh, our dear audiences not bitches. I, I retract my previous statement. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I think we had a. Uh, Highlighted really, really two really good stories uh, of two um, lesser known but well renowned. I mean, Manfred von Richthofen is not lesser known, uh, he is, but the details are not. <clears throat> yes, the details uh, are not. Hans Joachim Marseille is definitely lesser known, at least here in the, uh, this side of the Atlantic, right? And, and if you want to read more about these guys, you can check out. Uh, it's either called the Red Baron or the, the Red Fighter Pilot, but it's the Richtofen's autobiography. It's a great read. Uh, also, you can for Marseille, you can look at the Star of Africa, the story of Hans Marseille, the rogue Luftwaffe ace who dominated the World War II skies. I think we did that some service, uh, as, as they are due. See ya! Don't know where